Welcome to the BJ Education Podcasts. My name is Pooja Shah, and today I'm joined by Mike Gilham and Tom Barr to discuss their article from the September 2023 issue on temporary epicardial pacing after cardiac surgery. Mike Gilham is a consultant cardiovascular anaesthetist and intensivist. He's the Deputy Clinical Director of the Cardiac and Vascular Intensive Care Unit at Auckland City Hospital. His major interests include adverse event evaluation, patient safety, and quality improvement. He has published research in perioperative arrhythmia and pacing and has co-edited a textbook in cardiothoracic critical care. Tom Barr is a specialty trainee in anesthesia and intensive care at Auckland City Hospital. He has an interest in the critically unwell patient with cardiac disease and in the teaching of basic sciences. Welcome to both of you. There is no single way to correctly pace patients after cardiac surgery. And as your article informs, this is dependent on a multitude of factors, whether it be patient factors, the environment in terms of staff experience and type of monitoring, as well as the actual pacing system. What drew me to your article was the practicality it offers of understanding pacing systems and how to choose which mode of pacing for optimal safety and efficiency for both trainees as well as the anaesthetist who does not deal with temporary pacemakers on a daily basis. So to begin with, what spurred you on to write this article? I think it's extremely important and useful, um, but I'd like to understand what brought you to write it. Hi, Pooja. Thanks for having us on. Um, so as someone who's still training in anesthesia and intensive care, I remember when I started my first cardiac run and pacing was one of those things that took a long time to get my head around. And often it's a situation where nurses and especially senior nurses on intensive care uh, have quite a good handle on the terminology and the sort of concepts around pacing. And it's only when something goes wrong with the pacing or there's a problem that they'll ask a registrar to come and have a look and one of the things that became apparent to me was that when pacing is being taught a lot of the issues that come about in terms of misunderstanding relate to poor use of terminology and confusion of terminology around pacing and Mike had done a lot of work in Auckland and in the cardiac and vascular intensive care unit about clarifying those terms and teaching pacing Previously, there'd been some good reviews in the literature, but it felt like it was time to bring together something that was a bit more up-to-date, a bit more user-friendly. And so that sort of was what drove us to write the article. Um, And if I can just chip in, Pooja, I I, I would say that um, the way I started on this pathway was seeing several patients harmed from inappropriate temporary pacemaker settings. And uh, like Tom, when I started out in cardiac anesthesia and intensive care, I was aware that pacing systems were being used, but generally they were being programmed by the senior nurses. And uh, generally, we had no knowledge of any adverse events due to pacing systems being inappropriately set. And then as time went by, we had a few adverse events where we had good data on exactly what had happened and it became apparent that uh, significant contributing factors were the pacing systems were inappropriately set or the pacing checks were being inappropriately conducted. 
And so that really set me off on the journey of trying to understand exactly how pacemakers work better and how we teach uh, junior doctors and senior nurses and, and in fact, my colleagues how to use them uh, appropriately so that patients are kept as safe as they can be. Thank you. My next question is about the nomenclature used to describe the various temporary pacing modes. Um, Would you be able to briefly describe this? And also, how does this differ from permanent pacemakers? Yeah, of course. So essentially, the terminology is exactly the same as that for uh, permanent devices, except only uh, in an abbreviated form. And that terminology uh, sort of conforms to the the NBG code, which is uh, a generic sort of code based on the relevant North American and British pacing societies. And so the first letter corresponds to the chamber that's being paced. The second letter corresponds to the chamber being sensed. And then there's a variety of responses that the pacemaker can have to sensing. And so you can have inhibition of the relevant chamber in response to pacing. You can have triggering. You can have both or you can have no response to sensing, uh, which is otherwise known as asynchronous pacing. And so dependent on whether a pacemaker system is set to sense, you can have what we call demand or synchronous pacing, and that can be single chamber, so atrial only or ventricular, or it can be dual chamber, or you can have what we call asynchronous pacing. And commonly that's used in the operating room where you don't want diathermy to interfere with uh, the sort of administration of pacing impulses by the pacing system. We try not to use it uh, in the intensive care uh, because there's obviously a risk of RNT with that. And commonly it's only used in an emergency outside of the operating room. So the common modes that we tend to use in the ICU are AAI, so where the atria is sensed and the atrium is paced and there's inhibition in response to sensing in the atria. That mode tends to be used only when you've got good AV nodal conduction uh, and we commonly use it to um, increase the heart rate uh, when patients have sinus nodes uh, dysfunction, whether that's permanent or temporary, it's usually temporary. Uh, We use VVI modes uh, where there's only a ventricular pacing wire or as a backup mode where uh, patients uh, currently have an adequate intrinsic rhythm and conduction system. And then there's DDD mode where both the atria and the ventricles are uh, sensed and paced uh, at a given time. In permanent uh, devices, the fourth letter corresponds to whether there's uh, rate modulation or mode switching, and the fifth is for anti-tachycardia uh, modes, but they're not uh, used in temporary systems. Okay, and before we start talking about specific um, pacing problems, I think I was quite interested to see the algorithm that you describe to perform the pacemaker check. and. Um, to listeners who do have the article with you, there is a um, great diagram that you can 
have a look at to look at this algorithm whilst um, Mike and Tom discuss it. Would you be able to explain it here? And would you be able to also advise whether this check is different if you were in the operating room as opposed to the um, CCU or ICU? I think I'll answer the, the last question first because it's sort of, I think it's more logical uh, to talk about how you check a pacing system in the operating room first um, because that's where they're attached. And I guess um, what what I tend to do is um, is make sure that the ventricular pacing lead will pace the patient. Um, it's 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 surprising to me how common it is for a patient to come around, or certainly in the past it used to be common for patients to come around with a ventricular pacing system in situ that didn't work, and it was a, a surprise to all involved that. Um, that perhaps the pacing wire had fallen off the ventricle during the process of closing the chest. And so there was no pacing system. So uh, it's I think that the pacing threshold should be checked on the ventricular lead before chest closure. And essentially, as detailed in the article, if you can't capture the ventricle with less than 10 milliamps of current, then the system is probably not good enough for the next few days and consideration needs to be given uh, to placement of a, a second ventricular wire or placing it in a different part of the ventricle to try and obtain uh, reasonable capture. Um, thresholds between 5 and 10 are probably acceptable. It depends on the patient and their context. But ideally, you want the ventricular lead to capture the ventricle at less than five milliamps. And so what needs to be done is you need to dial a, a heart rate at least 10 or 20 higher than the patient's intrinsic rate, if they have an intrinsic rate, and then capture the ventricle with a, with a high output, such as 20 milliamps, and then reduce the uh, output until you lose capture. And generally, as, as Tom uh, alluded to, we tend to use uh, an asynchronous mode of pacing in the operating room. So uh, that's essentially um, what should be done, the minimum that should be done. And then um, ideally that should be checked again once the process of closing the sternum has completed. So you know that you have a functioning system which will save a patient should they have a, a, a significant bradycardia or uh, ventricular standstill dysrhythmia. Okay, great. So that's that's in the operating room. How would you translate that um, into the ICU or postoperatively? How would you then um, perform that pacemaker check? Okay, so... Um... There are two scenarios uh, when trying to undertake a pacemaker check in the ICU. Um, the first is where the patient has their, uh, their own native rhythm and it's uh, fast enough to sustain their hemodynamics. In that situation, the pacemaker is likely either off or in uh, a demand mode. The first lead that should be checked is the ventricular lead. To do this, the uh, ventricular output should be reduced to the minimum setting, which is usually 0.1 milliamps. 
and the rate of a pacemaker should be set at least 20 below the patient's intrinsic rhythm. The sensitivity is then increased, the value is increased towards 10 and towards 20 millivolts. And at some stage, the, the pacemaker will stop sensing the patient's R wave and will start pacing. And this will usually be indicated by the pacing system's indicator lights. Once the pacemaker has started to pace at the set rate, the sensitivity then needs to be reduced back towards the lowest value of 0.8 millivolts. At the level at which the, the pacemaker resumes uh, sensing, and it senses 100% of the R waves, that is the sensing threshold. What you're actually doing there is effectively measuring the R wave um, amplitude. The sensitivity should then be set somewhere between a third and a half of the sensing threshold. If the patient has a dual chamber pacemaker, then the uh, ventricular lead should then be inactivated or turned off. And the same process should be undertaken for the atrial lead. So reducing the output to 0.1 milliamps, keeping the rate at least 20 below the patient's intrinsic rate, and then progressively increasing the sensitivity setting until sensing is lost and the pacemaker begins to pace and then reducing the sensitivity setting again down towards 0.4 millivolts. And at the level where 100% of P waves are sensed, noting that that is the atrial sensing threshold, and then setting the sensitivity appropriately at a level of about 25 to 50% of the sensing threshold. So once the uh, ventricular and the atrial sensing thresholds have been uh, measured and the sensitivity set, it is now safe to um, measure the, the capture thresholds or the pacing thresholds of those two chambers. And so to do this, the rate now needs to be increased to uh, 20 above the patient's intrinsic rate. And again, the ventricular lead should be tested first with the atrial lead turned off. The ventricular output should be set at 0.1 milliamps and then it progressively increased until electrical capture is seen on the ECG. At this stage, of course, the heart rate will jump from the patient's intrinsic rate to uh, the set rate of the pacemaker. The output at which capture is maintained for 100% of beats is the capture threshold. And by and large, most pacing system manufacturers recommend that you set the output level at twice the capture threshold. So having obtained that capture threshold for the ventricular lead, uh, the ventricular lead should then be inactivated, the atrial lead turned back on, and the sensitivity set at the appropriate level for this patient, and the atrial output incremented from 0.1 milliamps progressively up towards 20 milliamps until 100% capture is witnessed. 
Now, with atrial pacing, sometimes depending on your ECG monitor, you may not see the actual P wave generated by the pacing spike. So what you're looking for is the increase in heart rate from the patient's native heart rate to the set rate of the pacing system. You may be lucky and you may also see a P waves after the atrial pacing impulse, but it doesn't necessarily always happen. And once again, once you've obtained that pacing or capture threshold for the atrium, then the recommendation is that you set the atrial output to twice the measured value. So the second scenario is where the patient is pacemaker dependent, and they may, of course, be uh, either single chamber paced or dual chamber paced. In order to check the sensing threshold of either chamber, the patient has to have a native rhythm, and therefore, we recommend slowly reducing the paced rate until such a time as the patient's native rhythm breaks through. At this time, of course, it, this is a risky time in that if the sensing of the system is poor, then as the patient's native rhythm breaks through, there may be inappropriate pacing spikes delivered to the patient. And so you need to be alert for that when turning the rate right down to see if a sensing check can be performed. If the rate is turned down to the minimum and the patient still hasn't developed an escape rhythm, then they are very pacemaker dependent and the sensing check cannot be done. The second option is that turning the rate down actually leads to a drop in their systemic blood pressure to an intolerably low level and the sensing check has to be abandoned because the patient's uh, native rate is just not high enough. In that situation, uh, it is essential to know what margin of safety you have on the pacing system. And by that, I mean you, need, you still need to try and measure the capture threshold for the ventricular pacing wire because if the output is set at 15 milliamps and the threshold has risen unbeknownst to staff to 14 milliamps, then that pacing system may well fail and this may necessitate action uh, from the electrophysiologist earlier. And just to add to that, Mike, as you alluded to, if your sensing threshold is low, then that's indicative that the device is sensing poorly for that lead. In that situation, uh, you should select the lowest value possible for your sensitivity um, and liaise with the EP service, especially before ward discharge. Thank you for that, Mike and Tom. That's quite a clear talk through of um, how to perform that pacemaker check in those variety of situations. And leading on from that, it might be worth talking about pacing problems, finding out what is the most important or what's the most relevant pacing problem um, for us to pick up and how would you troubleshoot that specific problem? Okay, Pooja. Um, I, I think to my mind and how I got started on this journey, the most important pacing problem I perceive is when 
uh, pacemakers deliver uh, pacing spikes inappropriately and induce uh, polymorphic VT or ventricular fibrillation. I think over the last six years, I've seen that definitely happen about four times. And uh, this can result in significant patient harm. Uh, luckily, all four patients I've seen it happen in were successfully resuscitated and didn't sustain any lasting injury. But I know that um, that's not always the case. And being put into VT or VF by a, by a device that's inappropriately programmed can lead to all that modern-day resuscitation entails, including broken ribs, lacerated right ventricles. Patients could ultimately die from uh, this uh, error of setting of a device. So um, the most important thing that I try to emphasize to our nursing staff and trainees is recognition of when a, a pacemaker is inappropriately pacing, because if they don't recognize that that's happening, they won't know to perform a pacemaker check. We've got an ECG strip in the article that shows uh, what inappropriate pacing spikes look like. Uh, in general, inappropriate pacing from the atrium, the worst that that can do is uh, provoke atrial fibrillation. But inappropriate ventricular pacing can uh, provoke non-sustained VT or polymorphic VT and sustained uh, polymorphic VT, which can degenerate to VF. So, so recognising that when it occurs and performing a sensing check and then either turning the device off if the device is sensing so poorly uh, that it can't recognize the R waves or setting the sensitivity low enough below the measured sensing threshold that the device begins to detect uh, the native rhythm again appropriately. Um, so so I think that, that, to my mind, that's the most important problem to detect and remedy. But of course, there are, as detailed in the article, a myriad of other problems that can occur, including uh, such mundane things as reduced cardiac performance from continuous right ventricular pacing. Thank you, Mike. I think... As a final, I just want to check whether there's anything else that you or Tom feel that um, is important advice when looking after the patient with the temporary epicardial pacing wire. Thanks, Pooja. So I suppose the only other thing I'd like to emphasize is that for those patients that have recently had their temporary wires removed, even in the last 24 hours, one should have a really high index of suspicion for tamponade if they develop any new shock or signs of end organ dysfunction. And that should prompt urgent echocardiography and discussion with the cardiac surgeons. Thank you, Mike and Tom. I think that our readers and our listeners will be very grateful to you for trying to almost demystify this topic um, to be able to continue to provide safer care, um, especially with 
systems that we don't fully understand. For listeners who haven't read the article yet, please visit our website, www.bjaed.org, where you can download the article. Thank you.